Before we dive into Genesis chapter 21, it's important we set the scene by just quickly going back a couple chapters, just a few pages to your left, to Genesis chapter 17 to set some context. Now don't forget where we are in our story. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 25 years for God to make good on a promise. Way back when, when they were living in Ur of the Chaldeans, God appeared, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And he gave him a lot of promises. Leave this country, go to a land I will show you. I will be your God. I'm gonna grow your family into a mighty nation through a son that I'm gonna give you and your wife. And it's been 25 years that they've been waiting for God to give them that son. Which is an important, critical point. Beyond just a desire for a child, this son was significant. You see, it was this promised son, the son that God had promised Sarah and Abraham through that child and his descendants, that God would ultimately provide a savior for sin. It was not just that Abraham and Sarah had a longing for a baby boy. It was that God had promised a baby boy whose family would grow into a nation by which God would save mankind. This remedy, this savior, a savior promised back in Genesis 3, verse 15. And we noted, and I'll note again, that it was the fact that Abraham believed that promise, that God would provide a savior, that he placed his faith in that assurance, that God accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham was a righteous man before God, not because of anything Abraham did or didn't do, but by a simple belief he had in a coming savior, a belief that he placed his full assurance, we would call that his faith, into. Now, with that in mind, you can understand why it is that Ishmael, was such an abomination. Not that he wasn't a good kid, but the whole notion of Ishmael ran counterintuitive to the plans of God. Born to Abraham through a surrogate that Sarah had provided the old man, a surrogate, an Egyptian maiden by the name of Hagar, Ishmael came to represent the fact that Abe and Sarah attempted to fulfill God's promises, that promise of a savior on their own their unbelief, their lack of patience, led them to a natural work of their own flesh. It was their efforts. Amazingly, Abraham even believed that God would honor Ishmael as his heir. That Ishmael, Abraham believed, and Ishmael's descendants would be the people that God would send a savior through. And yet that was not to be so. In verse 15 of chapter 17, set in context, for chapter 21, we read, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, I will bless her, I will give you a son by her. Now this is coming off of his mistake. I will bless her. She, speaking of Sarah, shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Well, Abraham fell on his face, he laughed, and he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham's thinking, this is ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. God, I don't know if you're aware of the birds and the bees, but there comes a point where the bees are no longer pollinating. We're too old. This isn't going to happen. 
Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. It's not necessary. I have Ishmael. But God said, and this is what's important. He says, no. It's definitive. Sarah shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I, God speaking, will establish my covenant with him and his descendants after him. My covenant, he repeats, I will establish not with Ishmael, but with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at a set time next year. Now these verses, for context, tell us three very important things. Three things that God makes very clear to Abraham. First, God rejected Ishmael, making their attempt to fulfill God's plans on their own insufficient. Secondly, this passage tells us that God's covenant, because he's rejected Ishmael, would now be established with Isaac, this son who was going to be born to Abraham and Sarah. And that covenant, once again, is that God would send a Savior. Thirdly, Isaac's birth, by its very nature, would be a supernatural act of God. Abraham and Sarah, no doubt, are old. Well, we get to chapter 21. We begin with verse 1. We're told that the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah, as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, just as God had instructed. So Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight years old, as God had commanded. And Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. It's interesting. Isaac's name literally means laughter. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children I have borne him a son in his old age. Now it's clear from our text that both the conception and the birth of Isaac here are completely a miraculous, supernatural act of God. There is no natural explanation for what's taking place here. I mean, it simply isn't normal for a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife to conceive, yet alone for Sarah to survive a birth only to then nurse a healthy baby boy. You know, it would have been nice if God had provided maybe a little bit more information as to how this took place, how this all occurred. And yet all we're told is that at the set time, the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did as he had spoken. <laughs> That's all we're given. We have no idea. We have no idea how God fulfilled these promises. But we do know that God had communicated a promise to Abraham and Sarah. And he had communicated that promise, how? Through his word. Did you notice it? As he had said, as he had spoken. A promise was relayed through God's word. And now God is making good just as he had promised. There is, and it's important, no natural explanation for what took place here in chapter 21 apart from a divine intervention, the divine involvement. While both Abraham and Sarah 
as we've pointed out, were far from perfect people. The one thing that is attested to by Scripture is that they both held to that promise. They had made a lot of mistakes, but they held to this promise of a son. They held to this promise that through the son would come a savior with all of their faith. Neither Abraham nor Sarah at any point has any clue how God would or could, for that matter, accomplish that promise, this work in their lives. And yet they believed God would work nonetheless. In his commentary on this passage, David Guzik wrote, quote, the promise of a son was not fulfilled because Abraham was perfect in his obedience. Oh, if you go back to last Sunday's Bible study, this fulfillment of the promise comes after one of Abraham's greatest blunders. And yet David Guzik continues, the promise was fulfilled through God's word. Both Sarah and Abraham believed that God was powerful enough to accomplish in their lives even the impossible. Let me give you just two quick passages. You can jot them down. I'll read them for you. But we're told in Romans 4, verses 19 through 21, and not being weak in faith, Abraham did not consider his own body already dead since he was 100 years old. He did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that what God had promised, God would be able to perform. In Hebrews 11, we're told that by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. She bore a child. We're told when she was past the age. Why? Because God judged faithful who had promised. Therefore, Abraham and him as good as dead were born many as the stars of the sky and the multitude innumerable as the sand by which is the seashore. Though it's not uncommon for pastors to use a passage like this, to exhort people to hold fast to the belief that God is faithful to fulfill whatever particular promises he's made to you, even when the fulfillment of those things appears to be impossible, if not improbable. And that is a valid point, that God speaks to us personally, and he lays on our heart particular promises, promises that we hold fast to, that we believe God will make good on, promises through his word, promises confirmed, promises yet we have no idea how he'll accomplish. And we hold fast to them. And this story is an example of encouragement that God will make good. He will satisfy. He will fulfill the promises that he's made to you. And yet, the application of Isaac's birth, this story, runs much deeper than just that. Understand, the entire point of Isaac's birth was to illustrate the reality that salvation from sin could only be accomplished as a work God would do in man and would never be accomplished as a work of man's flesh. It's the whole point of Isaac's supernatural birth. A work God wants to do in them, only God could do. A work that God wants to do in you is something only God can do. You don't play a role. You see, in and of themselves, Abraham and Sarah possessed zero power to manifest God's supernatural promises through their natural self. Why? They were old. In multiple passages, we're told that they are physically dead. There is no natural way in their flesh they can fulfill God's promises. 
And yet God can take even what's dead and bring it to life. This is the point. You see, as Isaac, the supernatural birth that occurs in the heart of sinners, when what's previously dead is called to life, miraculously, it can only come. It can only uh, result from a work of God, the involvement of God, the fulfillment of his promise, the promise of salvation is a work that God fulfills and not you. You see, you can't save yourself from sin. You can't cause your dead heart to come back to life any more than Abraham and Sarah could have a baby on their own. It's impossible, but not with God. Verse eight, so we're told that the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, this being Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Verse 8 tells us that Isaac has now developed, he's grown to the age in which he's weaned. That means Isaac's approximately somewhere between two and three years old. You should also note, and, and this will become relevant as we work through the text, Abraham's other son, Ishmael, at this point in time, is probably somewhere between the age of 13 to 14 years old. Now, to mark such an occasion, Isaac being weaned, culturally, this was a, a big deal. And so Abraham decides to throw a party. We're told that he throws a great feast. I mean, the scene is live. Everyone is singing and dancing and eating and drinking. Everything is super chill. But something happens. Sarah notices that Ishmael was scoffing, or literally, he's mocking or toying with, we presume by her reaction, to be little Isaac. Well, technically, Ishmael was Sarah's son. Don't forget, Hagar, Hagar had been brought in to be a surrogate for Sarah. Ishmael was Sarah's son. And yet the text tells us what? Doesn't refer to him as Sarah's son, does it? Refers to him as the son of Hagar, that Egyptian. Like You have to feel a little bit for Ishmael. I mean, he's done nothing wrong. He's not at fault. He hasn't done anything uh, to deserve what's happening in his particular life. I mean, Ishmael, with the birth of Isaac, his whole world gets flipped upside down. I mean, there's no doubt Isaac, because Isaac had been born supernaturally, not by Hagar, but by Sarah, Abraham's actual wife. Like, Isaac has supplanted Ishmael's position, not just in the home, but probably what, what stung more, in the heart of his dad, Abraham. I mean, now Isaac's the apple of his eye and Ishmael, who's a teenager, is not getting the same kind of attention. Jealousy is only natural. But we're told, verse 10, that Sarah, seeing this all happen, comes to Abraham. This is what she says. <clears throat> Cast out this bondwoman. Cast out her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be an heir with my son. 
namely Isaac. And we're told that the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. The sins of Abraham have clearly manifested now in a very tragic and unfortunate way. While there's no doubt that Isaac was the son that God had always promised, because Abraham had stepped out, stepped out in his flesh, had committed a sin with Hagar, Ishmael is part of his life. He's part of the equation. Mama bear Sarah doesn't like the vibe in the home, and now she wants Hagar, and she wants Ishmael gone, sent away. This phrase, that the matter was very displeasing, that's a loaded sentence. You see, in the Hebrew, it presents a situation where Abraham is torn inside out, that the whole situation is killing him. He doesn't know what to do. And why? Don't forget that Ishmael is Abraham's son. Abraham's blood flowed through the veins of that pimple-faced teenager. No doubt when Abraham saw Ishmael, he saw a reflection. The kid had his ears, his nose, parts of his personality. He was his child, the resemblance. Yes, Isaac held a place, a special place in Abraham's heart, but that didn't mean that Abraham failed to love Ishmael any less. The thought for this man of casting out Hagar and Ishmael, this seemed to be an unbearable option. What do you do? There's tension. You've got Sarah saying they gotta go. But your heart, because you love your son. But we're told, verse 12, that God, once again, you get another one of these but gods, said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Yet I will make a nation also of the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael, because he's also your seed. I, I like the way that this starts. Abraham is torn. He doesn't know what to do. Have you ever been in a situation like that? The, no option's a good option. Both sides make sense. You're like, I don't, <sighs> man, only if I had like infinite knowledge of infinite things, that would be handy, but I don't. And yet it's in those moments, but God. God steps into the equation and he says to Abraham, he communicates to Abraham. Abraham's wrestling with what to do with the family conflict, but God speaks to him and honestly gives him a very bizarre instruction. What God tells Abraham to do is strange. It's not strange in the sense that the counsel is for Abraham to listen to his wife. That's not what I'm trying to imply. Husbands, it's a good thing to listen to your wife. And yet what Sarah was instructing seems extreme. And yet God still communicates that he needs to listen to her. It's a bizarre instruction, but I love the fact that God couples it with a promise. Because Isaac was the promised son, Sarah was right. She was right in her position that Isaac should not ever share in his birthright with Ishmael. Regrettably, 
for God's plans to be accomplished, it would be necessary that Ishmael leave. And here's why this is the case. These two sons of Abraham, the son of the flesh and the one of promise, Isaac and Ishmael, these two boys could not coexist in the same home. As long as Ishmael was in the house, there would always be a threat to Isaac's position, his rightful position. He and he alone was to be the heir. So it's true that Ishmael had to go. And yet that would be painful. That would be painful for Father Abraham. So God promises, this is what you need to do, Abe. But here's the thing. I'm going to personally take care of Ishmael. I'm going to make him into a nation because he's your son as well. Now understand, this act of Abraham casting out Hagar, casting out Ishmael, it does seem like an extreme, cruel, even unfair proposition. Doesn't it? Let's, let's be real. It's not Ishmael's fault. It's not even Hagar's fault. It's Sarah and Abraham. It's their fault. Sarah takes Hagar, gives Hagar to Abraham. She's just obeying. She's a young, vulnerable woman. She's been told this is what you're going to do. You're going to be a surrogate. That's culturally normal. Hagar's done nothing wrong. Ishmael's done nothing wrong. He's dealing with the natural jealousies. This instruction to cast them away, it seems cruel unfair. And honestly, it really would be apart from the New Testament. You know, it's been said that the New Testament is the best commentary of the Old Testament, that it gives us insight into certain things that are happening and why they're happening that we wouldn't know otherwise. And this is a great example. Galatians chapter four provides us the necessary reason why Abraham needed to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. As a matter of fact, if you would turn to Galatians 4. We're going to take some time and we're going to look at this because the point of what's happening here, the reason it's so important for Ishmael to go, it actually is applicable to you and I. Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul He begins summarizing the section of Genesis that we've been looking at. Look at verse 22. Paul says, it is written, where? In Genesis, that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman, through promise, which things are symbolic. In referencing the Genesis record, Paul affirms that Abraham indeed had two sons, one by the bondwoman, who who is that? That is Hagar. Ishmael, born by Hagar, the other son of the free woman, that's Isaac by Sarah. You see, in defining the symbolic nature of these events, Paul is making a contrast. He's contrasting Abraham's son Ishmael who was of the bondwoman, Hagar, born according to the flesh. Abraham's efforts to do what? Fulfill God's promises. He's contrasting that with Isaac, who we're told is born of the free woman, that being Sarah, through promise or God fulfilling his promises, not Abraham. Paul's point here, 
is to highlight the symbolic nature of each of these two boys. Ishmael, born of the flesh, represents Abraham's desire to take matters into his own hands when it came to fulfilling God's promises in his life. Whereas Isaac, his birth, could only be attributed as what? Abraham doing something? Abraham's flesh? No. Isaac represents God supernaturally fulfilling his promises in the life of Abraham, the son born of promise. So you understand right from the bat, this comparison and this contrast between Ishmael, born of Abraham's flesh, his efforts to fulfill God's promises, and on the flip side, Isaac, born of Sarah, representing not Abraham's efforts, but God's grace, God fulfilling his promises. Verse 24, Paul carries it one step further. He says, these two sons and the way they're born are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Now there's a lot going on there. We're not gonna unpack all of it, but we're gonna get to the essence. While Ishmael and Isaac are the results of two different approaches that Abraham makes when it came to fulfilling God's promises in his life, right? One, involving his efforts. The other, God's work and God's work alone. Paul now says that, that this representation, this symbolism, these two different approaches, Abraham doing it and God doing it, are actually symbolic of two covenants, two different covenants. On one side, you have Hagar, whom Abraham laid with to produce Ishmael. While Ishmael represented the results of Abraham's flesh, Abraham's attempt to accomplish God's work apart from God, Hagar became that mechanism. She was the way Abraham did it. Paul says Hagar represents the law. This thing that aids you in trying to accomplish God's purposes in your life. Paul actually calls her Mount Sinai, which is a reference to where the law originated. This covenant of the law, when God gives the law to Moses, understand it was an agreement between God and man. The agreement was simple. God told man, as long as you obey me, I will be your God and you'll enjoy my favor. But if you know anything of the Old Testament, that agreement was broken over and over and over and over and over again. You see, under the covenant of the law, God's favor it was dependent on man's performance for one very important reason. The law accentuated man's inability to earn God's favor. The law set you up to fail to emphasize your need for a savior, for God to work, the importance of God's grace. You see, the law was designed all along to be broken, for you to fail. It's why the law came coupled with a sacrificial system for you to make atonement. Atonement for what? Your inability to obey the law. If you could obey the law, why would there be a need for atonement? The whole thing was packaged like, yeah, you obey me, and then when you fail, 
I'll atone for it. Picking up on a picture, you can't do it. When you get to the point you realize you can't, I'll take care of it. That's the point. I'll forgive. It's about God's grace. Now keep in mind, in this culture, your position, your practical standing and culture in society, it didn't come from your father. Your standing came through your mother. You see, Ishmael represented bondage because he was born of a slave. Like Paul's point in emphasizing this is that as Abraham, if you seek to accomplish God's work in your life through Hagar, through the law, through your obedience, through you trying hard, for you doing your best, if you attempt to do this, the only thing that will ever be yielded is bondage and frustration and disappointment. See, Paul continues in verse 28, 26. But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. You know, it's interesting. And please bear with me. While Paul defined the first of these two covenants, right? Specifically connecting the bondwoman to Hagar, right? The law, our flesh, our best efforts to Hagar. In these two verses, Paul doesn't make the same link between the free woman and Sarah. Do you see Sarah referenced here at all? No. Now, we know that Sarah was the mother of Isaac, but this is important, this is intentional. You see, though Hagar played a very specific role in facilitating Abraham's desire to accomplish God's work in his life apart from God's involvement, the same can't be said for Sarah, right? Not only was Sarah beyond childbearing years, but their inability to have a child? Whose fault was it? Like, why could Abraham and Sarah not have a child? Was it Abraham's fault? No, that's what's interesting. Abraham's little soldiers marched, had no problems with Hagar. As a matter of fact, even after the story, Abraham in his old age, those jokers are still scaling walls. The man had no problems bearing children. The emphasis, the implication, is that the problem bearing a child rested with Sarah. She couldn't have children. You see, their inability to have a child was the result of Sarah's barrenness. Like it would appear, Paul, instead of contrasting Hagar with Sarah, he contrasts Hagar with, we're told, look at the text again, the Jerusalem above, which he then says is free and, quote, the mother of us all. So what is this Jerusalem above? Well, it's a reference to heaven. You see, in referring to the Jerusalem above, Paul is stating that the promised life, the promised life God has, has guaranteed for you, has offered you, has afforded you, that life, as illustrated by Isaac, is a work that only God can accomplish. It has to come from heaven. It's not something you can conjure up, which explains why Paul quotes from Isaiah 54.1. 
You see, in, in this passage where he says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Like in this passage, Isaiah the prophet was reminding a group of Jewish people who were dispersed, who had been kicked out of the land, who had no chance of bearing life as a nation again, who had at that point lost all hope. Isaiah is saying, hey, you who are desolate, think back to Sarah who is desolate. God can bring life, even from what is dead. Well, I know that this is a lot of heavy theology. And you're chewing on it. It's why we write it down. You can go back and read it. Before we continue, don't forget, Paul is making very two simple points by going back to the story we read in Genesis. Two simple points. One, Abraham's natural man, his flesh, working through Hagar, produced Ishmael, who was a son of bondage. That's what it resulted in, Ishmael, bondage. Symbolically, this illustrated that God's promises could never be fulfilled through your flesh. And using the law to accomplish God's plans will only yield to slavery. It will enslave you. Two, Paul's point is that God supernaturally worked in Sarah, apart from Abraham, producing Isaac, which was what? The fulfillment of the promise. Symbolically, this illustrates that God's promises can only be fulfilled in your life through an act of God, manifested by his grace, which will only yield to greater freedom. Let's, let's just read on. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so... It is now, like now, now we. Paul's getting to the application of all of this symbolism. Like he affirms, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. We've been born of promise, a work of God. Born, he says, according to the spirit. What Paul's getting at is that your spiritual birth, like Isaac's physical one, was entirely miraculous. Your spiritual life, was a work of God's spirit alone, independent of your involvement, one that required barrenness. You were dead in the receiver, illustrated by Sarah. Notice what Paul says next, and this is where he begins to bring everything together. He says, but he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael. What happened? He persecuted Isaac, who was born according to the spirit, and even so it now is. Like here's Paul's point. The flesh, what is born in your life through the law, your best efforts, your flesh, friend, will absolutely never get along with God's spirit or what's born in your life through God's grace. As there was a constant and unreconcilable tension between Ishmael and Isaac, your flesh or your attempts to fulfill God's work in your life will always be in constant tension with God's spirit or God supernaturally trying to fulfill his work in your life. The two, the flesh and the spirit, 
cannot coexist. This is why it was important for Abraham to cast out Ishmael. Ishmael could not coexist with Isaac. As long as he was there, Isaac couldn't thrive. So cast him out. The same in regards to God's spirit in your life. As long as your flesh is trying to take control, exert its authority, God's spirit can never do its thing. It's why you have to cast it out. You see, the continued involvement of your flesh will by default leave less room for God's spirit to work. It's why Paul finishes his thought with a very simple exhortation in verse 30. He says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, so then we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. See, Paul is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, and he extrapolates from the life of Abraham a picture of your life in Christ, just as Ishmael and Isaac representing law and grace, flesh and spirit, faith and works can never coexist without there being strife and constant tension. It's of critical importance. You cast off the flesh, the bondwoman, her son, what's results? You know, today, it's so sad, but many Christians find themselves spiritually frustrated. Is that you? Do you feel like that there's constantly this tension? I don't think that that's an abnormal thing. Paul even talks about it in Romans 7. Very complex passage, but he's like, those things I want to do, I don't do. And those things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, this man that I am. Like, he's like, I don't know. This is this constant struggle and this strife and this tension. I want to do these things, but I don't. I don't want to do these things, and I do. What happens? How does this work? You see, Paul, he's telling us that what, what results, what causes this context, this conflict, is when we're trying to have our flesh work in concert with God's Spirit. You see, trying to get Ishmael and Isaac to coexist won't work because they can't. As long as Ishmael is home, Isaac can never flourish. As long as you're seeking to earn God's favor, friend, you'll never be influenced by God's favor. I'm gonna repeat that because I think it's important. As long as you're seeking to earn God's favor, you will never be influenced by God's favor. You've already been given it to enjoy, not earn or maintain. Understand, the product of God's grace, Isaac, the spirit, godliness, will never fully do its thing in you if you allow your flesh to have authority. Ishmael, your efforts, moralism. Friend, if you attempt to manage an unholy union, where you're trying so desperately to please God, and God's like, I've given you my spirit because I'm already pleased. And you're trying to work for something God's wanting to just give. And God's trying to give it, and you're like, ah, I'll keep doing a little bit more so I feel better, so I can be involved, so I'll feel good. As long as all of this stuff is happening, as long as you're trying to manage an unholy union, you know what will happen? You will burn out. You'll get tired. You'll be wore out. 
You see, the flesh and God's spirit cannot occupy the same heart. One must go for the other to flourish. Like, let me explain how this works practically. Some reason that people resist receiving God's grace because they have a fundamental resistance to admitting a need for help. That's often the logic. You know, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. In order to receive God's grace, you've got to get to the point where you're like, man, I need help. Like pastors even plead, you can't live life, friend, on your own. Jesus, Jesus wants to help. He's more than able to clean up your mess. You know, when you're weak, he'll be strong. I don't know why I get Southern when I do this, but it just, <laughs> have you heard this? With Christ, you can do anything. Anything. Like that sounds nice. It does. Even kind of on, on the surface sounds correct. But there's one large problem. While religion is more than willing to help you by giving you things to do to accomplish God's work in your life, friend, grace has no interest. I know that this might sound initially weird, but grace has no interest in helping you cross the finish line. It's not interested in providing you strength to succeed. That's not the point of grace. You see, legalism will jump at the first chance to help you out. And in a lot of instances, it'll even use Jesus to accomplish its aim. But grace doesn't want to help you do a dadgum thing. You see, grace is more interested in fundamentally transforming who you are. It's not about helping you. It's about changing you. Grace focuses on changing who you are. It's not interested in necessarily helping what you do. You see, the transformation, that's the goal of grace. And it requires in the receiver something much deeper than admitting a need for help. You see, grace, God's grace, God's amazing grace is only useful when the person has reached the end, when they've thrown in the towel, when they're at the end of their rope, where they're like, I can't do it anymore. Because grace is a spiritual life birthed from the death of self, just as Isaac. Grace can only be received once self can no longer be helped. Self has been reckoned dead, and then grace fills one's heart. You see, in order for Isaac to be the only heir, Ishmael had to be cast away. In much the same way that a caterpillar must first die before it can transform into a butterfly, while the gospel possesses the incredible ability to transform who you are, please understand, it's life-giving power can only be initiated when a person first lays down and dies. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he says, quote, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. See, it's important you understand that grace doesn't, doesn't demand you admit you need help. That's legalism. Grace demands instead that you cry out to God 
for life. That he takes what is dead and he brings it to life. That's what grace is about. You see, you don't need help. You need a savior. You need the spirit of God to indwell you and change you from the inside out. You can never change yourself from the outside in. Behavior doesn't change from the outside in. It changes from the inside out. Behavioral modification. You can get down on all fours, start running around this place barking like a dog. That don't make you a dog. Makes you weird. Acting a certain way doesn't change who you are. You can't change who you are. But God's spirit can and will. See, when it comes to being a righteous person, when it comes to doing the right things, you have one of two options. You can either rely on yourself. Ah, I don't need God's help. And therefore live in conflict and failure. Or you can rely on his spirit. The fact that God doesn't need your help. But understand, you can't rely on both. Ishmael and Isaac cannot coexist. Oh, Zach, how can I remove self from the equation? How do I do that? Especially like practically. Like last time I checked, I'm kind of tethered to this thing. So how do I do this, practically speaking? One of my favorite books. It's called Christ Indwelling and Enthroned. Written by J. Oswald Sanders. He wrote this, and he's correct. He said, self cannot dethrone self, or it would wear the victor's crown. See, that's the problem with moralism. Like you have one struggle. Let's say it's alcohol. And as a result, like you go and you get 12 steps that are going to help you overcome that. Right? Let's say you're successful. You get done, you're like, yeah, man, I did it. Okay, cool. Now you've exchanged alcoholism for pride. And last time I checked, pride is one of the seven deadly sins, not alcoholism. You're regressing. You should go back to drinking. (laughs) It's pride. Like when we try to do things, we regress. We get worse, even when we feel like we're getting better because it's based in something that isn't true. It's our flesh. It's a cheap imitation. It's a knockoff. It's Ishmael. It's not Isaac. You see, self cannot dethrone self because man, it'll pop itself right back on the throne and says, I did it. So how does, how do you get that guy off the throne? It's simple. If you want to dethrone self, the way you do it, is you enthrone Christ. You say, Jesus, that throne, it's you. It's yours. Because if Jesus is sitting on it, guess who can't? You. You can try so hard to earn God's favor. Or you can take a step back and say, you know what? Jesus, it's yours. You reign supreme. You're on the throne. I'll follow your lead. You take the authority away. You see, instead of your focus being on the attempt of of banishing the flesh, your daily focus every morning should be on Christ. You sit on the throne. 
It's why, it's why I think we do a disservice to Christians when we emphasize sin. It doesn't mean that sin shouldn't be emphasized, that we shouldn't discuss it. But the problem is, is it's the problem. We can talk about sin all day long. We can talk about overcoming sin all day long, but what you, you, like you can't overcome it. I'd give you 30 steps for doing this or 30 steps for that or three pointers for, for, for how you figure this out. And like, none of it works. It all fails. Like you're powerless. You see, our emphasis shouldn't be like, man, you sinned again. The emphasis should be every day of like, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus, this morning, you're on the throne. Because I know if you're on the throne, it'll change the entire trajectory of my day. If I'm on the throne, I'm going to make a mess of it all. Because I'm good at that. Man, if, I, if I'm on the throne, sin, very easy. Like, I'm good at it. Like, I'm not, a, I'm not good at a lot of things, but sinning, I've kind of mastered that. I don't know if you can sympathize with it. I have no problems doing the wrong thing. It comes naturally. But when Jesus is on the throne, when his spirit, oh, it changes it all. Whereas my tendency is to sin, Jesus is to walk in righteousness. You see, you die to self when you make the decision to cede the control of you to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, Lord,